Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 37, The Roman Slayer. Now first, as always, I want to thank our latest Patreon supporters, Marcelo Poirier and Benjamin Duval. Huge thanks to both of them. And as always, remember, for just you know a dollar an episode, you can make a real difference for the podcast and get yourself that awesome History of Bonsko miniseries. So consider pledging. Also, I want to give a quick shout out to my friends at the Sofia Bohemian Tour. They're a new free tour in Sofia. Uh, I did the went on there um, uh, what two months ago maybe with some guests from the U.S. and they're really awesome. They focus on the late 19th and early 20th century history of the city, which is the period I specialized in during my academic days. So they're definitely worth checking out. And one last thing, kind of a big announcement for me, I want to mention that with the release of this episode, we're going to hit a hundred thousand listens in the last roughly year and a half, which is when I started tracking listens at all. Now, you probably know the podcast has been around for a lot longer than that, but still, 100,000 listens that I can kind of see the numbers of, that's huge. It's, you know, six figures, uh, feels great. Also, the Facebook page is only two likes away from reaching 1,500, so if you haven't, go ahead, give that a like. You could be number 1,500, make me a very happy person. But really, overall, I want to take these both as a, a chance to really say thank you to all you listeners. Uh, again, I, all these years later, I'm still always amazed at how this is going and how much I enjoy doing it. And that's so much a part of what you guys do by listening and supporting the show. So thanks. Okay, so last time we left things on a knife's edge. It was 1204 and the whole world seemed to have suddenly been turned on its head. Constantinople had fallen, not to the Bulgarians or an army of Turks or Arabs, but to a Christian crusader force. Now, before we dive back into events, I think this monumental change in the world in and around the Second Bulgarian Empire deserves a bit of perspective. So let's recap for just a moment and then dive into what the new geopolitical landscape looks like. So to that question, how did we get here? How did this happen to the mighty Byzantine Empire? True, the empire had fallen very fast from the high points of the Komnenian Restoration. That golden era lasted almost exactly 100 years, from 1081 until the death of Manuel in 1180. And from that point, from 1180, in just 24 years, it all came to this. In 24 years, the empire was gone. Paul Stevenson his analysis uh, provides some insights here. He points out that it all began really before the death of Manuel. The arrest of the Venetians in 1171 permanently soured relations with what had previously been a reliable ally. Then, the catastrophic losses against the Seljuks dealt huge blows to the military capabilities of the empire. Then, the massacre of the Latins in 1182, further distanced Byzantium from any potential friends in the West. In short, Byzantium kept losing friends 
just as fast as it lost soldiers. Now, none of these makes the events of, uh, of 1202 inevitable, but the position of Alexios IV and the unique financial situation of the Crusader army were really, they were just as critical as the readiness to sack Constantinople was born out of decades of growing mistrust. But in any case, the relationship between East and West and the European world would never be the same after the sack of Constantinople. And it's with this bit of analysis that we bid farewell to Stevenson uh, and his excellent book, Byzantium's Balkan Frontier. It's finally run out, and so I'll be using some new sources. But it's been an invaluable resource, and I have to say thanks to it. Okay, so now, as I said, I want to go over those successor states of the Byzantine Empire. So we have some idea of where everything is and what on earth is going on in this brave new world. Let's start with the Empire of Trebizond. Again, there's a map on the website. Highly recommend checking it out. It will make all of this much, much clearer. So this state, Trebizond, stretched along the southern Black Sea coast of Anatolia between Sinop, or that part of Anatolia that kind of bulges into the Black Sea, to around what's now Batumi in modern Georgia. Now, Trebizond was founded by the two sons of the late Emperor Manuel Komnenos, while the Crusaders were laying siege to Constantinople and everyone was distracted. Now, this was done with help from some of their relatives in Georgia, and the state was a close ally of Georgia from its establishment. Manuel's son Alexios was proclaimed emperor in Trebizond, well, because his father was an emperor, and that's how he managed to just sort of take the title, and why we refer to it as the Empire of Trebizond, in spite of its small size. Next, we have the Empire of Nicaea. This state was founded by the son-in-law of Alexios III, Theodore I Lascaris. Now, Theodore had been proclaimed emperor in the final days of the fall of Constantinople and then fled to Nicaea. And this is why this state is also called an empire. Really, we're just blossoming with empires. They're growing like weeds. It stretches from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea, kind of sideways across Anatolia. But it doesn't control any territory along the Sea of Marmara. This is still part of the Latin Empire. So once again, just check out the map on the website. It'll make all this much clearer. Finally, we have the Despotate of Epirus. Now, this one was founded by Isaac II's cousin, Michael Komnenos Dukas. Initially, he decided to ally with Boniface, who had just become king of Thessalonica. But after taking control of the Peloponnesus, he broke his alliance and moved to Epirus, taking huge numbers of Byzantine refugees uh, fleeing the Latins. So, essentially, he was going to kind of you know, get comfortable with the Latins as a Greek uh, Byzantine person, but he saw an opportunity, took it, and went off and established his own state along the uh, Tyrrhenian and and Adriatic Seas. So those are the three Byzantine successor states, right? So we've got Trebizond, Nicaea, and Epirus. Now remember, all of them are in some ways in competition to be the ones to retake Constantinople from the Latins and reestablish the Byzantine Empire. So it seems like they might be friends and they certainly will work with each other on occasion, but they're also most definitely rivals. Okay, so what about the Latins? Now, here's the basic structure of those states. 
Venice was independent and had its share of Constantinople and other territories. Then you had the Latin Empire proper, and finally a bunch of vassal states of the Latin Empire. Now these vassal states were as follows. Sorry for all the listing, but you know we all have to get our bearings here. You had the Duchy of Philippopolis, based obviously in modern Plovdiv and Thrace, the Duchy of Athens, founded by a knight from Burgundy, the Principality of Archaea, which consisted of the Peloponnesus uh, after it was conquered by two French knights in the aftermath of the Fourth Crusade, and the two knights just went ahead and proclaimed themselves princes there. And lastly, the Kingdom of Thessalonica. Now, This was founded by that guy we mentioned, Boniface, who expected to become the new Latin Empire, but was rejected by the Venetians due to his perceived close ties with the Byzantines because, as you'll remember, his brother was married into the royal family. So, instead of becoming Latin Empire, uh, sorry, Latin Emperor, Boniface just went on to the next best thing, which was the second city of the empire, Thessalonica, before the Latin Empire could take it. But even though he went off and took this instead of the Latins, he still swore fealty to the empire. Okay, so there's a quick run-through of all the successor states. In short, between 1204 and 1205, these new Latin and Byzantine states were all kind of finding their legs, getting established, taking what territory they could take, and working out between them what's the new pecking order in the region, who's allied with who. All of it is very fluid, right? You may think off the top of your head that uh, the alliances here are going to be pretty given, but they're, they're actually not. They're going to be super fluid, so that's why it's so important to understand who everyone is. Also during this time, from 1203 to 1205, Tsar Kaoyan had been very busy himself. He had taken Macedonia and a lot of land in Thrace. Which, again, makes sense. I mean, the, the whole former Byzantine world is in chaos, so this is a great time for the Bulgarians to just snatch some territory. So, yeah, that's his strategy. You know, strategy. Take as much land from the Byzantines uh, while there's no Byzantines left to hold it, and before the Latins can take a hold of it. Once he did this, Kalyan wrote to the Pope to request that the new Latin Empire respect his territory. But, well, that didn't matter much. Uh, you could probably guess, the Latin Empire wasn't about to just accept that Gaulian had taken all this Byzantine territory, which they now considered to be their own. So the idea that, you know, Gaulian's going to get the Pope to say it's okay and everyone's going to play nice and respect his lands, not very likely to happen. So with this information, it's pretty clear to both sides that war is coming. Gaulian began his preparation by taking in Byzantine refugees and telling them to have their countrymen rise up in rebellion against the Latins. In return, they promised to make him emperor in Constantinople if he would only help them retake the city. Now, again, at this point, this is what I'm talking about, about when I mentioned fluid alliances, because Kalyan had just offered the Crusaders an alliance before they took Constantinople. Uh, you know, he's moving between these sides as is convenient. You know, within a couple years, uh, he's offering to, yeah, help the Crusaders conquer Constantinople or help the Byzantines take it back. It's a bit funny. So, but yeah, that's the politics of this time. So in this case, the Byzantines no doubt knew that, well, beggars can't be choosers. They, we can probably all figure out, they didn't exactly really want Kalyan to be their new emperor. Uh, I'm sure they probably hated the idea deep down, but 
you know, they would do anything they can to retake the city from those Latins who they clearly despised for what they had just done. So in 1205, those Byzantines kept their promise, and Byzantine leaders in Adrianople rose up in rebellion against the Latins. The Latin Emperor Baldwin could see the threat from the Bulgarians as well as this rebellion, and so he quickly sent all the forces he could to lay siege to Adrianople and put this rebellion down. Gaulian saw that this was his time to strike. He moved down towards Adrianople with 40,000 Bulgarians and another 14,000 Vlach and Cuman allies. In the meantime, the Latins drew siege lines around the city and prepared to starve it into submission. When he arrived, Kalyan made his camp north of the city. The battle began with Kalyan's Cuman light cavalry using that classic tactic of the steppe, one the Byzantines were all too familiar with, but one which the Latin knights of the West were clearly not. The Cumans rode down towards the Latin army and attacked them. Then they feigned a retreat, turned around and ran, luring the Latin knights to follow in pursuit. Then, once they'd been brought away from the main force, well, the Cumans simply turned around and showered them with arrows, causing massive casualties. Now, once that first day was over, the Latins resolved not to fall for that trick again. Though, the fighting would have to wait, because the next day was Catholic Easter. Bear in mind, Orthodox Easter was, as it is now, a week earlier. So, you know, the Bulgarians had already gotten their Easter out of the way, but now it was time for the Latins. While the Latins were celebrating the, ho- uh, the holiday, Cumans again swept in, attacking them and making a lot of noise while they did it. Now, you could probably imagine, the Latins were furious that they had been attacked on such a high, holy Christian holiday. In their anger, they gathered their equipment and rushed off to attack the much faster Cuman cavalry. Despite the fact that they had a battle plan that they had agreed to just the day before, the the Latin Crusaders had a plan. They knew what they were going to do, and that plan was not to run off and chase the cavalry. They did anyways. They left to attack as soon as they were ready, not as a single force, piecemeal. They all just ran off in their anger and their fury to go get their revenge. So the Cumans simply led the Latins behind them, easily outrunning them with their heavy armor. And of course, an ambush had been prepared. The Latins simply had to be led to it. First, the Latin knights began to fall into the so-called wolf pits, dug into the ground ahead of time. And as the riders fell, the attack halted as the knights tried to figure out what was going on. In the meantime, Bulgarian infantry swept around and surrounded them. Then, when the remaining knights, along with Emperor Baldwin, arrived, it was already too late for them to save their comrades. This next group itself was surrounded by Bulgarian heavy cavalry. With two groups of knights separated from each other, they hardly stood a chance. They were each completely surrounded, and the Bulgarians used ropes with hooks on the end to throw and grab the knights' armor and yank them off their horses so they could be killed one by one. This took until nightfall. Robert de Clary, in his chronicle, wrote that the, quote, blossoms of Western knights, end quote, had died. It was clearly a tremendous tragedy for the Latins. These knights, which were so important to their culture and their military prowess, were massacred. 
Even worse, Emperor Baldwin himself was captured and brought to Tornovo to sit in a prison tower. That tower was reconstructed in 1930 and actually sits on the same place today that is known as Baldwin's Tower. It's a lonely part of the Tornovo fortifications. It looks out over the forests beyond the city. One can only imagine what it must have felt like for Baldwin, so recently that first crowned emperor of this new great Latin empire, to sit in a Bulgarian prison. So what happened to him? Some sources claim he was tortured and his skull was turned into a cup, just, had, just as Krum had done to Nikoforos I, nearly 400 years previously. But considering the fact that Kalyan was still trying to ingratiate himself with the Byzantines and the Pope, the other story, which is that he was treated with some respect, seems actually more likely. But in any case, we know that Baldwin died in that tower. Though we don't know when and we don't know how. He'd only been Emperor of the Latins for 22 days shy of a single year. So, what other effects would come out of this catastrophic loss for the Latins? Well, as you can imagine, word of the Battle of Adrianople shocked the Western world. Less than a year after it had been established, the Latin Empire had already suffered a tremendous loss. The myth of the invincible knights fighting with God's grace who were able to take the queen of cities in mere months was destroyed. Perceptions of the Latin Empire were changing as fast as this news could spread. Once they confirmed Baldwin's death, the Latins in Constantinople crowned his brother, Henry of Flanders, as the new emperor. But Kalyan wasn't done. While the Latins were still getting their bearings, figuring out what had just happened, Bulgaria's army returned south in 1205 and ravaged Thrace and Macedonia, invading the recently established Duchy of Philippopolis and Kingdom of Thessalonica in the process. At the same time, taking advantage of the weakness of the Latin Empire, the Empire of Trebizond retook land in northwest Anatolia. But on his way south, Kalyan came to that great fortress city in Greece known as Ceres. Latin troops left the safety of the city walls to face the Bulgarian army, and here were defeated and overrun. Thus, Kalyan's soldiers entered the city without even having to lay siege. Some defenders were still holed up in the citadel, but surrendered when promised safe passage to the Hungarian border. But safe passage was only ultimately given to civilians. All the knights were murdered. Kalyan then decided to bypass Thessalonica itself and take Veria before turning north to capture Maglan. At this point, Kalyan seemed unstoppable. Emperor Henry, who was now more secure on his throne, attempted to take pressure off by attacking Adrianople, but the siege failed. Yet another siege had to be abandoned because of flooding. And so, Kalyan wasn't much distracted at all from his adventures in Greece. As he moved back north, he also took Philippopolis, murdering all the nobles who had collaborated with the Latins. It was now the end of 1205, and Kalyan had to return to Turnovo to put down riots which had broken out against his rule. Evidently, all three brothers, though powerful rulers and military commanders, were also brutal and not well-loved by their people, 
as evidenced by the murder of Kalyan's brothers. But in any case, once these riots were put down, Kalyan immediately returned to campaigning. The Latins had been trying to regroup and draw together their strength and mass forces at Rusion, near the Sea of Marmara. It's labeled Caipsela on the map on the website, so you can kind of see where we're talking about. As Kalyan approached Rusion, he planned to once again attempt to exploit the inexperience of the Latins using his Cuman cavalry. He had them take a minor fortress near the main fortress, containing the bulk of the Latin forces, thinking that this would draw them out. And it did. A force of many of the best knights and soldiers in the Latin army were sent to retake the fortress. But when they arrived, it was deserted. On their way back, they were ambushed by Kalyan's forces and almost completely wiped out. Those which managed to escape fled to the town of Rudosto on the Sea of Marmara. There, they met more Latin and Venetian troops. But when Kalyan arrived, such was their fear of him that his forces, that they barely resisted. The Venetians and others fled into waiting ships, overloading them and causing many of them to sink in the harbor. You can really just imagine the scene. These people rushing into the water, rushing onto these boats, the boats overloaded. A real, well, horror show. Kalyan was now moving on the main road towards Constantinople, taking towns and looting along the way. As one Byzantine historian wrote, quote, He was exacting revenge, as they say, for the evil which Basil II did against the Bulgarians. And, as he said, as Basil dubbed himself the Bulgarian Slayer, he named himself the Roman Slayer. End quote. In response to these losses, the Byzantines and the Latins began to unite against Kalyan, each realizing that he was now the greater threat. Any pretense Kalyan had maintained up until now of being a friend to both the Greeks and the Latins was gone. As such, resistance strengthened, and Kalyan's attacks became less effective throughout 1206. Latin forces invaded and released prisoners, while the kingdom of Thessalonica recaptured Ceres. Even Pope Innocent III was writing to Kalyan, asking him to make peace. But of course, the Tsar refused. Now, at this point, politics gets a bit strange. Kalyan concluded an alliance with the Emperor of Nicaea, who had been fighting the Latins himself. Now, this was in part because the Emperor of Nicaea had also recently started a war with the Empire of Trebizond and needed to ensure the Latins were distracted. Trebizond, for some reason, was now a Latin ally, in spite of the fact that it was founded by a member of the Byzantine royal family. Again, I told you guys the politics would get very confusing, and the obvious alliances were not going to be so obvious. So anyways, in 1207, owing to his new alliance with the Empire of Nicaea, Kalyan was laying siege to Adrianople. At some time into the siege, his Cuman allies decided that they had enough of this war and wished to return to their steppe homeland. As a result, once he lost these allies, Kalyan abandoned the siege. But while it was ongoing, Henry had been negotiating with Boniface, the king of Thessalonica. They came to good terms. While Boniface was heading home, he was attacked by a local Bulgarian force. Boniface and his troops were massacred. 
his head was allegedly sent to Kalyan. So with the sudden death of its king, Kalyan now saw an opportunity to take Thessalonica. He and his army rushed there and began a siege. But this was the end of the campaign for Kalyan. While the siege was underway, he died, either of a lung condition or perhaps murder by someone else who was close to him for political reasons. If so, then all three brothers of that early Asen dynasty would have suffered the same fate, murder at the hands of unknown assailants. One of the exact theories is that Kalyan's wife, a Kuman princess, collaborated with his nephew Boril, who is the uh, the well, the daughter of a sister of the three brothers, or a son of the sister of the three brothers, to murder Kalyan. So Boril, to make it clear, is his nephew. Now this seems possible, though there isn't any conclusive evidence either way. But what we do know is that Boril did marry Kalyan's widow and become the new Tsar. Clearly, though, Boril was already as feared as his uncle had been, because all the remaining members of the Asen dynasty, including Ivanasen's son and Boril's brothers, all fled to neighboring states upon his ascension to the throne. So, whether legitimate or not, Boril was undoubtedly seen as a usurper, an invalid Tsar. But, before we get more to him, to wrap up, we should look back at Kalyan, the youngest of the three brothers. He watched his family rise up against the Byzantines and forge the Second Bulgarian Empire. He then spent some years as a captive in Constantinople before being freed and watching his three brothers, or his two brothers, rather, murdered. He then took the reins of power himself, witnessed the destruction of Bulgaria's oldest foe, and became, for a while, probably the most feared man in Europe, the Roman Slayer. But, Ultimately, the three brothers all lived in violence and died in violence. They were able commanders, but never seemed to instill the kind of love in their people that Tsars like Simeon had once. As such, Kalyan and his brothers are ultimately somewhat tragic figures. They fought hard, but were loved by few and feared by many. And that is the early legacy of the three brothers of the Asen dynasty. Next time, we're going to see how this new Tsar Boril stands up to his three famous uncles. Will he be as fierce and as able a commander? Can he change this history and inspire the love of his people? And most of all, can he navigate the increasingly complex politics of this wild post-Byzantine world? Well, you'll have to wait and see. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook. If you could be one of those last two, that would be awesome. Leave us a review on iTunes, listen to us on SoundCloud, all that good stuff. Check out the Bulgaria Now podcast. Um, and yeah, get in touch. Uh, I'm always, uh, I can't always answer super quickly, but you can always email me or write me on Facebook. So in the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>